0: Hello, and welcome to the ILO's Future of Work podcast. I'm Sophie Fisher. This time, we're looking at something you may regard as an art form, but is also a job, albeit a very different one. The world of the professional dancer. The career of a professional dancer is precarious. They need to train intensively when young, when many of us are studying to get academic or technical qualifications then their professional performance careers are comparatively short, perhaps into their mid-30s or maybe their 40s. And that assumes it isn't all ended early and suddenly by an accident or an injury. So what happens to dancers when they have to stop performing? What's it like to have a career that relies so heavily on the physical ability of youth? With me today is Jennifer Curry, who is Executive Director of Dancers Career Development. DCD is a non-profit organisation that helps all kinds of professional dancers plan career changes. And we also have William Bracewell. William is a principal dancer with the Royal Ballet Company in London. He started dancing as a child and has won multiple awards. This season, he'll be on stage at the Royal Opera House in London, dancing leading roles in some of their most important productions. William and Jennifer, welcome to you both, and thank you so much for joining the podcast.
1: Thank you for having
0: us.
2: Oh, it's lovely to be here.
0: William, first of all, when did you start dancing as a child? And, and when did you realise that this might actually be a professional career and not just um, something you enjoyed doing?
2: Yeah, of course. So I started ballet training when I was uh, nine years old in Swansea, which uh, wasn't the most popular uh, choice of after-school activity. Um, I was, I think, well, the only boy in my class. Um, But there was something about it that just really intrigued me. If you, I guess, cut forward to the age of 13, I I was lucky enough to get into the Royal Ballet School at the age of 11, So I moved away from home, which was a big, big change. Um, But yeah, I think it was around the age of 13. I I realized that this potentially could be a job. There was a lot of work to do uh, to get to a point to achieve the things that I was seeing professional dancers doing on stage and to be able to not just the physical side of, of what I needed to do with my body, but in terms of, I guess, the way I needed to emotionally act and uh, be able to tell stories in the way that I was so captured in performances that I'd seen.
0: Age 13 is when a lot of kids are basically starting their serious academic work. Mm -hmm. Ballet takes hours and hours of training and practice. How do you balance at that age, um, Or perhaps you can't balance that age, the the academic requirements with the ballet requirements. I mean, do you have to compromise on the academics?
2: Well, interestingly, um, I would say both of my sisters were just very much more innately academic than I was. But because I went to the Royal Ballet School, which had much smaller class, class sizes, we got, I think, more attention and more catering to us individually. In our um, academic studies, so I kind of I ended up at the age of sixteen with, with coming out with with better grades than my sisters had, even though they were even acknowledged by my mum. They were generally more academic than I was, and although you know I have I had the equivalent of a, of a degree from my dance training, uh, that was something both my sisters went on to formally study in. So, I mean, I, I would say the school did a brilliant job at providing us with, with both of these academic skills and incredible dance skills. I mean, that is to say it was a really, really difficult and grueling schedule. I look back at it now and I, I don't think I could do it <laughs> as an adult.
0: <laughs> tell, tell us about the day. Tell us about an average day.
2: So average day would be probably 7.30 up. 8.15, you'd already be in registration ready for your first set of classes until around um, 10.30, then you'd have ballet class till lunch, then you'd have another set of academic studies after lunch, mm-hmm. then you would have an afternoon of either, it would alternate either academics or dancing, and then you'd have more dancing in the evening till around 5.30, 6.00 then it would be dinner and then you'd have another hour of homework time in the evening and that was monday to friday and then there would be supplementary classes on a saturday so it was um yeah it was it was, it was a lot of work but i do generally think you know it's afforded me this career that i absolutely love now
0: and and let's let's t- t- spool forward a little bit and um and now you are um uh, a very well-established professional dancer uh, at the Royal Opera House at the, uh, with the Royal Ballet Company. I hope this is not a, an inappropriate question, but how long do you expect to be able to keep that up?
2: No, not at all. It's one of the things that I think DCD are, are brilliant at is in the most kind way possible, they help you realise that this career, there, it, will, it will definitely end at some point. Yeah, I mean, I would be if I made it to forty, I would be thrilled. If it if it was before then, then uh, that would be great as well. I, I had an incident where I had to have um, back surgery uh, about three or four years ago, and that there was a time during that process where I did think I would potentially not dance again. So I've got, I've sort of worked through some of the psychology of what that what what that's like to have it taken away potentially prematurely.
0: I mean, that's one of the sort of shocking things about dancing. Looking on the internet, you know, I've seen that the injury rate is comparable to football or wrestling. And literally, you could go on stage, an ankle could turn the wrong way, and that's it. I mean, has that happened to some of your colleagues?
2: Um, Yeah, unfortunately, I have known a handful of people that have had such serious injuries that um, they weren't able to make it back to dancing. But it's rare that people don't make it back at all but it does unfortunately happen.
0: Jennifer, let let me bring you in here. I mean, William basically had the best training available possibly, you know, at White Lodge, the Royal Ballet Company's um, junior school. Um, and he got very good academic uh, training as well as ballet training. But you deal with dancers from all kinds of backgrounds. Is this common or do, do you find that some of them have had to compromise on other qualifications to get on in their dance profession?
1: Mm, I think that's that's a really interesting point, and I think it it really depends, <clears throat> excuse me on the individual dancer. I think what we're seeing now is a real uh culture change within the industry. I think there's um much more emphasis now on dancers. As individual human beings, so therefore, you know, the, thinking about dancers as as the sort of whole whole self, and, and thinking about a long term career and what that might look like. So I think we're seeing some really positive changes um, within training institutions. But you're you're absolutely right in that the dedication, the time, the focus, the commitment that is required to train to the highest level within dance to enable a a professional career um, can sometimes not always but can sometimes mean that academic qualifications can fall less sort of down the priority list but also I think it's it's around you know what what other things do do young dancers might have to to sacrifice to reach that professional level you know we know that dancers are in training often surrounded by other dancers um, and so what we do at DCD particularly through our work with with students is to encourage the students to think about themselves yes as as dancers but also as individuals and um, to consider you know themselves in the wider world and actually how considering yourself you know within the wider world can actually contribute to your to your performance career.
0: And William, does anybody ever talk to you or did anybody ever talk to you or your colleagues about things like health and injury insurance, pensions, stuff like that?
2: I mean, yeah, we have an amazing um, healthcare care team. Uh, we did at the school and more so in the company. And, uh, you know, especially going through a big injury, I learned so much about um, my health, my general health, my the psychology of my performance career. Um, I've, I've got a pension. be happy to know that, <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a pension. I mean, we're encouraged to obviously pay into our pension scheme because we will most definitely need it. But I do have to say that, you know, Jennifer, that when I first experienced DCD, when I was at Birmingham Royal Ballet for seven years, that was probably the first time that I began the conversation around contributing more so, not just not not being quite so single-minded in my approach to dance, and I I just I I cannot I can't I can't champion DCD enough in what they're doing to to change dancers perception of the dance world and why what they are able to do on a much wider perspective, and I think they've been DCD have been key in changing that conversation.
0: Jennifer, do you find um is it common among the dancers that you talk to that they have thought at all, or even put in place things like uh, insurance and and pensions and so forth? I mean, what are they looking at when when they they finish dancing? Again,
1: I think it's it's really changing. I think you know dancers that are that are coming through through training and that are in professional companies and freelance uh, dance artists as well are really having to to think seriously about lifelong careers you know i think um you know the covid pandemic particularly really highlighted the precarity of a dancer's career, um, particularly those freelance dancers, but also, you know, the the many hundreds of dancers within companies across the UK and and the world. So I think we are seeing a change. We are seeing that dancers are much more aware of the opportunities that come with thinking about career development. Um, The opportunities now to explore different sides of who you are Um, and I think you know the work that we do at DCD uh, what's so inspiring to me is that we you know we help retain really talented highly skilled individuals within the dance sector and within the performing arts and cultural sectors you know dancers retraining as uh, choreographers, as teachers, as lighting designers—you know—the list goes on. But also, uh, we have dancers that move completely a- away from the sector, and you know are, are joining the the workforce as uh, florists, plumbers, lawyers, uh, doctors. Uh, it's it's really inspiring and, and fascinating to me that as individuals, just with that little bit of support actually what they can go on to to achieve
0: yeah let's talk a little bit then about about the sort of transferable skills i mean you you mentioned choreography and that's kind of quite an obvious one dance teaching that's another fairly obvious one but you know there are more dancers in the world than there are needs for choreographers so i mean rather than looking at the professions if you break down the skills that william and other dancers have let me put this to both of you. What what would you say that they are, that they could bring to any other kind of profession?
1: Gosh, I mean, I think uh, I think there's there's so many. I mean, you know, the obvious ones of creativity, resilience, the work ethic, dedication, focus, flexibility, uh, teamwork, working on your own, empathy, courage, grit, uh, all of these uh, skills I think that that dancers have in an abundance and dancers I think have a really unique way of navigating the world and I think what DCD are here to do is first of all encourage dancers to take some time to really recognize what they have and what they have to offer but then also to, to match that up with potential Employers and to encourage employers to really see dancers for um, for
0: who they are and, and what they can contribute. William, do you want to add anything to that that rather impressive list of skills?
2: Uh, no, yeah. <laughs> I think the, the thing that I've sort of noticed, I think, over over my experience with with other dancers is having gone through a, quite an intense period of training at a very young age. You you realise working incredibly hard is very very day-to-day to, to us but what is amazing about the people that I work with is the variety of skills that they bring to work and I think that's what DCD do so well is they look at the individual and they're able to delve in and find the skills that maybe they don't actually use all that often in their dance careers but are innately there within the individual and they change vastly from person to person
0: Yes. I mean, I suppose those would include things like memory because you have to, to learn all those those different roles.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a day this week, I rehearsed five different ballets in a day and <laughs> and then had a performance in the evening. <laughs> so they've got, yeah, I mean, but I wouldn't particularly say my memory's brilliant, but it obviously is for dance steps, which, you know, obviously, which must be transferable in multiple ways.
0: Jennifer, I noticed that on the DC website, you have an interesting tagline, which is that the first call is the hardest. Now, that implies to me that in, in transferring out of dance performance into other things, there's also a big psychological element.
1: Absolutely. I think, you know, and William can, of course, speak speak better to this than I can. But I think from, from our perspective, um, you know, we see dancers who um, have started thinking about, you know, this profession, as William said earlier, from a very early age and have had to have been very, very single minded in order to to reach the level that they are um, in terms of a professional career. So, you know, it can really be absolutely terrifying for a dancer to think about what they might do when they're not performing you know a a dancer is absolutely who you are and and what DCD is saying is that you know that won't change you will always be a dancer but what what can you add to that what else can you uh, can you offer and and contribute to to the world so absolutely it can be a terrifying thought Um, it can be very very scary and what we encourage dancers all dancers to do is to come to dcd and build that relationship as early as possible in their career so that when the time does come dancers feel prepared they feel curious and actually they 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 feel excited about about what else they can do Um, but we're very aware that it's it can be a very very difficult time
0: Yeah, I I saw the quote from Martha Graham, uh, the famous choreographer, which is what, like, a dancer dies twice and the first time is the most painful. But that's pretty negative, actually, really, isn't it? Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and what DCD says is that that doesn't have to happen. Of, of course, we acknowledge that, that you know, it's a very, very difficult, a very difficult time. And that's why DCD exists purely to support dancers, because it's, um, it's very, very specific. But actually, let's turn that around. You know, what are... The opportunities uh, within transition, and of course, we know that outside of dance, um, you know, individuals are transitioning and moving into different careers um, all of the time. And individuals will will now more often than not have have you know four or five different careers and perhaps a portfolio career. Um, so, absolutely, we we encourage dancers to
0: um, to see it as an opportunity. William, what sort of um, things do you see your former colleagues going into, or your current colleagues talking about?
2: You know, it really does vary hugely. Um, you know, te- t- I think teaching is a is a big one. Some choreography, some arts management. So, I mean, but my partner, who is a freelance performer, really did struggle during the lockdown. He obviously had no work, so so retrained as a florist, and now we kind of. Grow, try and grow our, as many of our own flowers as possible for him to use in his work. But I mean, yeah, doc, doc, doctors, medicine—the the range is incredibly varied. Photography, yeah. I'm getting wider by from what yeah, Jennifer says. Uh, some finance, some um, yeah.
0: And have have you thought at all about hopefully in the long distant future what you might want to do after you stop yeah, performing? I,
2: mean, I, I de- I've given it a lot of thought, and I think I've fallen into the second category that Jennifer was talking about where DCD have been there from very early on in my career. So I've started to have these conversations and have these thought processes going on for for, for many years. And I'm not certain at all about what I want to do, but the thought of reaching that point isn't scary. I actually get quite a lot of, I sometimes get quite excited thinking about the possibilities of what I could do next. Because as much as I love ballet, it's really, really difficult. <laughs> and it does, it, it, it can take its toll. So, so on those days where I'm just really exhausted, I sometimes daydream about this slightly less physically grueling career that I would have.
0: <laughs> well, I do hope, actually, that that will not be for some years to come. And we will have the pleasure of seeing you on stage for for quite a long time to come. Um, And look, that's, I'm afraid, all we have time for today. So many, many thanks to both Jennifer Curry and William Bracewell for joining us. And if you want to find out more about DCD, there is a link to their website on the website of this podcast. And if you want to see William dance, and I highly recommend that you should, you can look at the website of the Royal Ballet in London for information about cast lists. And of course, they also have global rebroadcasts of live and recorded ballet performances. So for now, let me wish you all goodbye. And I hope you will join us again soon for another edition of the ILO Future of Work podcast. Goodbye.